You are listening to the 12 Stone Podcast. For more information on our eight locations or service times, please visit 12stone.com. Now enjoy our guest speaker today from Ransom Church, Pastor Phil Tagg, as he delivers, Houston, we have a problem. Well, it is an honor to be here, uh, not just because I love 12 Stone, but because of the friendships I've developed with Pastor Kevin, Pastor Dan, Pastor Miles, and so many who have just poured into us and poured into our church, and we're really, really grateful for that. So it's a lot of fun to be here. Uh, So let me start with a question. How many of you know what this picture is? If you know, you can whisper it to your neighbor, you can tell them what you think it is. Uh, This is what was left of the Apollo 13 mission. Maybe you were alive, uh, maybe you saw the movie, you know? But April 11th, 1973, Americans headed to the moon, the main module, the Odyssey, that was their home. That was where they lived. Uh, this thing that you're looking at, the lunar module, the Aquarius, uh, it, was, it was just to go to the surface and back. That's all it was for. It was transportation. And, and that was all that they were gonna use it for until there was a short in the main ship that caused an explosion which crippled the Odyssey permanently and left the main ship literally bleeding oxygen. And try as they might, they didn't have any way that they could fix it, and so they, had to, they were left with no choice. They had to abandon that ship. They had to get into the Aquarius just to survive, at that point having no idea how they were gonna get home, what was coming next. And Apollo 13 mission is known for the, probably the greatest understatement of all time. Houston, we have a problem. Well, this wasn't a problem, this was a disaster. This mission, was a failure. They never reached the surface of the moon. The Odyssey was destroyed and lost in space. NASA, this should be one of those things that NASA just wants to sweep under the rug. And yet this is one of the most remembered and most celebrated missions in the history of NASA because they managed to take this great failure to scrap together what little they had left literally with space hoses and duct tape and to bring these three men home alive. And so Apollo 13 has been labeled a, quote, successful failure because they failed to make it to the moon, but they got all three men home safely. And while they were in the midst of the work, in the midst of the tragedy, trying to bring these guys home, one NASA worker uh, was, uh, said, this is our greatest disaster. And flight director Gene Krantz had a different opinion. Krantz uh, is credited with the following reply. He said, with all due respect, sir, I believe this is gonna be our finest hour. Now, who knows who this old guy is? Okay, tell your neighbor if you think that you know who this is. This is Thomas Edison. He is one of our greatest inventors. He's remembered as this brilliant mind, this industrious spirit. He's responsible for harnessing electricity. He's the inventor of a lot of things, but most importantly for us, the light bulb. His inventions have changed our world forever. He's heralded as a champion, as a world changer, and we're quick to celebrate his lasting achievement. But did you know he was a huge failure? Thomas Edison, uh, the light bulb didn't work the first time. It didn't work the second time. It didn't work the 10th time. And Edison would make notes and he would make adjustments and he would try again. And it would fail and he would make notes and make adjustments and try again and fail. And he kept learning, he kept failing, kept learning, kept failing. He discovered all these chemicals, all these elements, all these things that did not work as the filament of a light bulb. He saw every wrong attempt as a step forward and it took Edison around 10,000 tries to succeed. You wanna talk about a steep learning curve. Any of you tried and failed something 10,000 times? 
I, I, it, this has never been done before. It was new groundbreaking stuff. It, it, you could read about it. He had to keep failing. He had to keep learning. He is the model of perseverance. When, when asked how it felt to fail so many times, he said, I never failed. I found 9,999 things that do not work as the filament of a light bulb. And in one of my favorite Thomas Edison quotes, he says this, many of life's failures are men who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. Even the church that we are sitting in, if you're newer to the church, if you have not read Pastor Kevin's books, uh, you're gonna find out really fast uh, if you get into the history of the church that this thing was a colossal failure for like a long time until it wasn't. And the reason it wasn't is because Pastor Kevin was willing to keep failing and to not give up. Here's my question. Where have you given up too early? I wanna take you into Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two is famous for this dynamic launching of the church. It's the power of God poured out on the people. You know, Peter preaches and 3,000 people are baptized into the kingdom. Most would look at the church from Acts chapter two and they would label it as a smashing success. And they would, in fact, so much so that we try to study it and we try to you know, copy their model and go, how can we be an Acts two type of church? And we, we talk about that like a, that's a strategy or a model. And they, so they, every, the, all these churches claim a desire to, to be like the Acts two church. We want the Holy Spirit to move in our churches, to move in our lives, just like the Holy Spirit moved in Acts chapter two. The problem is we're not willing to fail to get there. You see, every church wants the blessing of God upon it. We want the success of Acts 2. We want to see God move in a powerful way. Even those who say, well, we're, we're, just, we're not really about numbers. They still want the movement of the Holy Spirit, amen? And when you want a powerful move of the Holy Spirit, you look for it anywhere you can get it. So we look to Acts chapter 2. We just don't look to all of it. Typically, when we look to Acts chapter 2, we look at verse 1 through 12 and the pouring out of the Spirit. We go, wow, that's so incredible. I want that. We look at verse 13 to 21, and, and we see God doing extraordinary things through, extraordinary, or through ordinary people. Then we jump ahead to Acts 42 to 47 and the description of the unity in the body, and they had all these things in common, but we tend to overlook verses 22 to 36, mostly because it's messy. We don't know what to do with it. We don't like it. But if we want the real picture of the birth of the church, we need to see the full picture. We need to see how God uses apparent failure to bring about great success, which is honestly a super hard pill to swallow. Because anybody here really enjoy failure? Okay, you just celebrate this. A few people have no problem with it at all. Uh, but the rest of us, we try to cover up our failures. We're kind of like uh, this commercial that illustrates it well. Watch this with me. DirecTV has been rated number one in customer satisfaction over cable for 17 years running. But some people still like cable, just like some people like wet grocery bags, getting a bad haircut, overcrowded trains, turnstiles that don't turn, and spilling coffee on themselves. But for everyone else, there's DirecTV. So see, we tend to view our failures like DirecTV views cable. I mean, maybe some of you love failing like a weirdo, but the rest of us, we like to win, right? As a result, we avoid failure at all costs. We push it away. When we fail or start to fail, we immediately try something else. We become discouraged. We, we stop trying. We don't wanna be in any way associated with failure. But what if failure isn't all bad? What if the fear of failure is actually keeping us from God's will? What if by choosing to always avoid failure, 
we're actually missing God's refining work in our lives. What if failure is often the means that God uses to get us where he wants us to go, and if we don't fail, we're not gonna get there? We see this all through scripture. Moses killing the Egyptian. David and Bathsheba. Peter cutting the guy's ear off, right? Peter denying Christ. Peter, probably a hundred other things. <laughs> Sometimes our plans have to fail in order for God's plans to succeed. The question I wanna ask us today, 12 Stone Church, are you willing to go where God wants you to go if you have to fail to get there? Mark Batterson is a pastor of National Community Church in Washington, D.C., and he writes about this in his book, Wild Goose Chase. Uh, Mark leads one of the largest and fastest growing churches maybe in the country, uh, but what a lot of people don't know about Mark Batterson is his first attempt at church plant in Chicago failed miserably. And he writes this in Wild Goose Chase. He says, failure teaches us our most valuable lessons. We make the all-important discovery that even when we fall flat on our faces, God is right there to pick us back up again. When we trust our plans more than we trust God, our plans can keep us from pursuing his, him and his will. And sometimes our plans have to fail in order for God's plans to succeed. So how do we break out of the fear of failure? How do we get to a point where we become okay with things not always being okay? I wanna, I wanna bring us to three ideas that will help us with that. First, we have to understand God is sovereign, okay? In other words, he knows what he's doing. So let's jump back in Acts 2, verse 22. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. Now, the phrase here, publicly endorsed, is literally the phrase accredited. Jesus was accredited, was publicly endorsed by God. He did miracles, wonders, and signs, and even like his opposition couldn't argue with what he was doing. They hated him, they wanted to discredit him, but they couldn't discredit the miracles that were happening right in front of him, the miracles he was performing. Until the cross, until Jesus was crucified and suddenly everything he had ever done came into question. Now, you break this passage down here, it talks about three things. Miracles, the root word of miracles there is a word for, the root word for dynamite. So God, Jesus was doing some explosive stuff. Wonders, the root word there is prodigy. It's things that make you go, oh, wow. And then signs are things that point to a greater spiritual truth. So some explosive, awe-inspiring things were happening. Jesus has a following. He has these 12 disciples. Things are going great. The next thing you know, it all falls apart. Jesus predicts his death. Judas, his follower, betrays him. The Pharisees accuse him. The crowd turns on him. Pilate washes his hands of him. The Roman guards spit on him, beat him, mock him, and crucify him. And the very people he came to serve call for his crucifixion. The cross seems like the greatest failure ever. Uh, Christianity is the only religion in the world based around the death of its founder. I mean, think about that. For all rights and purposes, it's based around a failure. And for all rights and purposes, this is an epic fail. And yet this is kind of God's MO. And I wanna look at part of verse 23 here. It says this, and I wanna look at it in the NIV this time. I love this wording. It says, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you, watch, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. You know what that means? It means God did this on purpose. 
It means that what appears in scripture to be the weakest thing God ever did was actually the greatest. Jesus' crucifixion was God's hugest failure and took plan according to his foreknowledge. It was part of his deliberate plan. In putting Jesus to death, they were actually helping God's plan. The, the prophets actually talked about this all through the Old Testament. They, nobody should have been caught off guard. The problem is when the Messiah came, it just didn't look anything like they thought it was gonna look. They were expecting a, a, a win, right? They were expecting a, a conquering hero, a po political champion. They weren't expecting the suffering servant. And it contradicted everything that they thought the Savior would be, everything that they even wanted the Savior to be. And not only is he not the Messiah they expected, now he's hanging on a cross and he's dying. In their opinion, in every way, this is a failure, and yet it's perfectly according to God's plan. In fact, listen to this prophecy from Isaiah 53, written hundreds of years before the crucifixion. Isaiah 53, verse 10. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's, here it is again, good plan will prosper in his hands. Folks, God is sovereign. He knows what he's doing. He didn't make mistakes. The question is, do you actually believe and trust that? I mean, we say we do as Christians, but I, I don't know what you're facing in life. I don't, I don't know what's going on for you. I don't know where it seems like God has maybe failed you or he's let you down or he's abandoned you or he seems distant or far away. Ultimately, you have to decide in those moments, do I trust him? Do I trust that God is sovereign? Do I trust him so much that I'm willing to let my plan fail so that God's plan can succeed? The death of Christ was always in God's plan because he loves turning seeming failure into victory. Which leads to another truth. God uses our mistakes to bring about his miracles. The second half of verse 23 says it this way. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. Now, would you like you know, that to be said to you? You killed the Messiah. Like we've all made mistakes. We've all blown it. They win, right? I don't care what you've done. They've got you beat. Peter lays the death of Jesus Christ on their conscience. I mean, some in the crowd that he's speaking to actually would have been the ones that called for Barabbas' release. Some in the crowd he was speaking to are literally the ones who called for Pilate to crucify Jesus. So the death of Jesus is quite literally on their heads and on their hands. For thousands of years, guys, We've been talking about this Messiah. He's gonna come and you're longing for him and finally he arrives. He doesn't look like what you expect and you hate him, beat him, mock him and kill him. Way to go. Imagine hearing that message. You helped kill the Messiah sent by God. And it's easy in that moment to go, boy, am I glad I'm not one of those guys. Well, sit in this moment and recognize you are. And I am. He said, wait, no, 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 that was over 2,000 years ago. I was, I'm, you can't put that on me. Oh, no, I can. The blood of Jesus Christ is on every one of us. God sent Christ to die for my sins and your sins as well. Have you ever sinned? Then you helped. You ever sinned? Then you're part of it. By sinning, you helped nail him to the cross. 
We have to understand this. He was not held to the cross by nails. They couldn't hold him there. My sin and your sin are what held Jesus Christ to the cross. And I'm not saying that to make us all feel guilty. I'm just putting it on the table. It's us. It's on us. And yet, this is the point where everything shifts. Look at verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter offers two words here that turn miracle or mistakes into miracles. They're these two words, but God. I don't care what your life is. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what mistakes you've made, but God changes everything. The word agony in this passage is a picture of the pain of childbirth. Now, those of you who have kids or have pregnant wives, uh, it's not a surprise to you that you know when it's time for the baby to come, the baby is coming. Like there's nothing you can do. It doesn't matter how much it hurts. It doesn't matter how much you fight. It doesn't matter if the husband passes out on the floor. The baby's coming, right? And no force on earth is gonna stop it. That's the language that Peter chooses to describe the resurrection. He says, it's impossible for Jesus to remain dead. It is impossible for Jesus to remain a victim of sin and in hatred. It's not possible for Jesus to not conquer sin and death. Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to conquer sin and death, and there's no force on earth that's going to stop it. F.F. Bruce put it this way. He said, it was not possible that the chosen one of God should remain in the grip of death. The abyss can no more hold the redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. It's as if Peter was saying, what did you expect? Like when the baby comes, no one's, no one, what? The baby? No one's so surprised. <laughs> Neither should we be surprised by the resurrection. Neither should we be surprised by the fact that death cannot hold Christ. He was going to be resurrected and nothing in the world could stop it. See, Jesus' resurrection was always in the plan. We just didn't see that. He died to conquer sin. He rose to conquer death. That's just basic foundational stuff for the Christian faith. People will ask, why did Jesus have to die? It's simple, to make miracles out of our mistakes. Tim Keller wrote a book called The Reason for God, and he tells a story. He said, in the mid-1990s, a Protestant denomination held a theological conference in which one speaker said, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. Why can't we just concentrate on teaching about how God is a God of love? The answer, says Keller, is that if you take away the cross, you don't have a God of love. That's what the basic gospel tells us. John 3, 16, for God loved the world, loved you so much that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Listen, God uses our mistakes to bring about his miracles because of his great love for us. We've all made mistakes. We've all fallen short, that's clear. I don't know your secrets. I don't know the skeletons in your closet. I don't need to. Everyone in this room has them. Everyone's failed. Everyone's fallen short. Everyone's made mistakes. Everyone has regrets. Everyone's been hurt. And we've been taught to 
uh, hide it and bury it and deny it and ignore it to cover up our failures and our habits and our addictions and our mistakes and our regrets. And we, we, we cover it up and we justify it and we convince ourselves we're okay by comparing ourselves to the next person. But inside, we're literally dying in our own secret sins. And God is just dying to do a miracle with your mistakes. Which leads to the third hard truth in life, or the third hard truth here. God loves us enough to let us fail. Are you okay with that? God will absolutely let you fail. Did you know that? I mean, that seems odd at first. Why would he let me fall on my face? But think about it. What have you ever learned from success? The only thing you ever learned from success is that you were successful. You also learn the lie that you're good, and that's probably not even true, right? <laughs> All you learn is, I was successful, but that's no guarantee you're gonna be successful the next time. Now, pause, that's not an excuse to just keep on sinning. Romans 6 is pretty clear about that, right? We're not to use grace as an excuse to sin. I'm just saying all life-changing, life-altering lessons are learned through failure. And the greatest pleasures in life typically come on the tail end of the greatest pain. Look at verse 32 and 33. Peter writes, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us just as you see and hear. Now, if you stay zoomed in on Acts chapter two and you keep reading, Peter is gonna finish his sermon and 3,000 get saved that day. I don't know about you, that's good, right? The church is birthed in a powerful way but what you don't see, what no one talks about is how it started with some epic failures. I mean, Peter, the guy preaching the sermon in Acts chapter two, where 3,000 get saved, failed miserably. He denied Christ three times right before he was crucified. I mean, it does not get worse than that. The disciples said, we will be with you. We'll never leave you. And as soon as they came into the garden, they all fled. They failed to stand with Christ. That's how it went down. Christ is crucified. His disciples ran like cowards. Everything's lost. But three days later, God does a miracle. And he brings the greatest victory in the universe out of the most horrific failure in the universe. My question is, do you really think he can't fix your failure? See, here's the irony of the gospel. The freedom of the cross, it's only available to failures. God cannot save you if you can't admit you need saving. Jesus did not come for those who are put together. He did not come for those who were perfect. He came for the broken. He came for the hurting. He came for the lost. He came for the rejected. He came for the failures. The reason as we read the New Testament that we see how much Christ liked hanging out with sinners is not because he loved sin. It's because he loved honesty. His focus was on sinners who admitted their need for salvation, not on religious leaders, also sinners, by the way, who didn't think they needed it. Verse 36 brings it home this way. It says, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, this failure whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Listen, if the church is ever gonna be on fire, if 12 Stone is ever gonna be on fire, if you're gonna chase your 2021 vision 
to just be a multiplying force. It starts in every one of us and it's gonna take every one of us, but it starts by admitting our failures. I don't know your life. I don't know your past. I do know we all fail. It's inevitable. It's a fact of life. It's not the failure that affects the end game. It's what you do after the failure that separates us. See, there's a world of difference, a world of difference between failing and giving up. And maybe you're here today. And in life, in faith, in everything, you just, you feel like giving up. You're believing the lie. My failure disqualifies me. If that's you, please hear me. Please hear me when I say this. You are a failure. That much we know. You knew that when you came in the door. But God can use your failure to bring about his greatest victory. He can turn your miracle into, or your mistakes rather, into the greatest miracle. 12 Stone Church longs to be a church on fire, but far too often that fire is snuffed out by the lie that God can never use me. God wants to light a church on fire, but it has to start with him lighting you on fire because you are the church. He wants to pour out his Holy Spirit. He wants to be part of just bringing a revival in this place. He loves it. He loves you so much, but if he's gonna use you, he has to love you enough to let you fail. But he also loves you enough not to leave you in your failures. But I think for far too many of us, we have bought into a lie. We've bought into the lie I have failed, it's over for me, God can't use me. And far too many of you, you've given up on God's plan for you, but he hasn't given up. So I wanna turn it over to the campus pastors and let them close us in prayer, but, but let me leave you with this challenge. 12 Stone Church, don't give up. And each of you individually, don't give up. Too many of us miss the joys of the Christian life, not because we fail, but because we give up. And if you find yourself in the midst of the biggest failures of your life, be confident God's with you. He's for you. He loves you. He's moving. He's working in your difficulties. The move of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two started with Christ on the cross. And the greatest change in your life can start with that, Christ, that same Christ too.
Oh, and he shall 